everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to The Katie Halper Show. We are so excited to be bringing back to the show Vijay Prashad, a very popular guest. Everyone's here to see him. Everyone's very excited. He's an historian, editor, and journalist. He's a writing fellow and chief correspondent at Globetrotter. He's the chief editor of Leftward Books and the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Researcher. He's a senior non-resident at Changyang Institute for Financial Studies, Remnant University of China. He's written more than 20 books, including The Darker Nations and The Poorer Nations. His latest book is Washington Bullets with an introduction by Evo Morales Aima. So I'm going to remind everyone to subscribe if you're not already a subscriber. You can join us on YouTube also. Also, please hit the like button. The least you could do, just hit the like. It just tells us that you love us. And we know that you do. And we know you're here to see Vijay Prashad and so excited. So express that by just hitting the thumbs up. And you can, of course, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So you can see this full interview with Vijay Prashad. If you're here live, you're in luck because you get to watch the whole thing with us now. If you're watching this later and you want to see the whole thing, go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Vijay, welcome. Hi, great to be with you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming back. Very excited to have you back. I want to ask you about so many things, but we talked about Ukraine and you've written a lot about the different ways that the war in Ukraine has affected the globe. And you've focused on Central Asia, which is an area that really does not get a lot of attention from the media in the United States, at least. And you have a really fascinating piece about Japan and Russia that I'm going to ask you about, and a really interesting piece about Pan-Asia, Pan-Asianism, Pan-Asian identity, what that means, what Asia means. Really, really thought-provoking. But before that, I want to know your thoughts on Pakistan. And I wanted to have you on because I was like, I don't really understand what's happening there. I'm following it. I don't know who to trust on this. And maybe this is a bad thing and I shouldn't be admitting this on TV, but I was like, I trust his take. I'm going to go with his take. Now, people are going to accuse me of being lazy, intellectually lazy or something, but I'm. that's okay. I'm just going to say out loud, I read stuff, I follow things, and I farm out a lot of expertise because I can't be an expert in everything. That's where you guys come in. I'm going to name you International Affairs Correspondent for the Katie Halper Show. There you go. Things are really going to, you may even be able to write a book with Chomsky. That's how much things are looking up for you. That's a joke because he already has. So anyway, so all of that to say, let us know, please, what are your thoughts on what just happened in Pakistan and the ouster of the prime minister, Imran Khan? So I think the first thing to do is to just take a step back and recognize that um, late last year, there was an enormous concern with what was coming, which was the inflation question. You know, um, during the pandemic, it was clear that there was a so-called supply side shock. Um, China was in lockdown, and then now with the lockdown in Shanghai, this is a considerable worry. Um, And since so much of the production of goods and some services takes place 
In China, there was a real supply-side shock. A supply-side shock simultaneously with the, um, you know, the lockdowns ending in parts of the West, people interested again in going and, you know, going to restaurants or going to see movies or just going out and buying more, actually. Um, you began to see the classic problem of uh, people bidding for fewer goods. And that's when inflation starts to go up. Now, there was a fear of this inflation by itself. In fact, in Pakistan in January, um, inflation went up by 13%. This is a very high number. You know, Imran Khan had, had said in 2018 as the prime minister of Pakistan that, you know, he's going to tackle the problem of livelihood in the country. So when inflation spiked near 13% in January, again, it wasn't something particular to Pakistan. It's been happening all over the world. Because of that, there was a real concern about what might happen. You know, the economic crisis could go out of control. Same thing started to occur in Sri Lanka, where again, inflation rates went very high. Um, and we see this in Honduras, in Peru, in, in several countries. Okay, now you get the war in Ukraine. Um, about 30% of the world's wheat comes from Ukraine and Russia combined. You get the US sanctions on Russia, very harsh sanctions. Uh, you get the lockdown in, um, in China again because they have a zero COVID policy. All of this, you know, uh, put prices up again. A uh, lot of pressure on these countries, you know, uh, the inability to use their domestic currency to buy enough stuff. Anyway, in Sri Lanka, the economic crisis just catapulted into a political crisis against the Rajapaksha family, which governs that country. In fact, the Economist magazine headline on Sri Lanka was the economic crisis becomes a political crisis. Um, in Honduras and Peru, it was relatively measured. It was there a kind of fuel price protest, bus drivers and so on. In Pakistan, it was interesting. Um, several things were happening in Pakistan at the same time. And I don't want to emphasize one over the other. One, there was mass urban and then middle-class discontent because you saw a rise in middle-class poverty as a consequence of inflation. You know, how many people can tolerate 13, 14% price rise? In the United States, you know, there's a, a expectation that uh, prices will go up by 1% this quarter, perhaps 1% next quarter. It's disturbing for people, you know, if you're on fixed incomes and so on or if you, you, in fact, are having a hard time making a living anyway. So the first thing is that there was an economic crisis. I want to say this, Katie, because this is actually not talked about much on the you know, interwebs. People go immediately to this is a coup, this is a conspiracy, and so on. There's mass discontent, that's for sure. Secondly, Mr. Imran Khan um, made an interesting bet. You've got to understand, Pakistan, the main institution that takes... Um, you know, charge of the country is the military, the main institution. Since 1947, the military has basically governed the country. You know, they've allowed civilian leadership here and there, but they basically hold the rod, you know. And Imran Khan, when his party came to power, he was fully backed by the military, you know, fully backed by the military. Now, interestingly, um, he in the last few weeks began to say things that were not uh, sitting well in Washington. For instance, um, he was in Moscow when the uh, Russian government launched the invasion of Ukraine. And in Moscow, he basically went and met 
you know, Russian President Vladimir Putin and they had a cordial conversation and he basically suggested I stand with Russia. Comes back to Pakistan, finds that the military is not happy with him. In fact, weird, the military chief made a political comment, said that we are against what's happening in Ukraine. Now, imagine that. It's a formerly democratic country and yet the military chief is speaking about political things um, outside uh, you know, the ambit of the government. Anyway, um, Mr. Uh, Imran Khan was also interested in substituting some of the reliance that Pakistan has on Saudi Arabia. Pakistan buys a lot of oil from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia gives it credits, you know, um, they give money in credit. And, you know, Pakistan is on the hook for a lot of money to Saudi Arabia. Um, it's interesting that uh, there were like a million things happening there. Now, Mr. Imran Khan reacted to all these things by saying it's a foreign conspiracy. That argument took hold among his supporters. And in fact, the new prime minister who has come in um, has had to, you know, it's very interesting. Once Imran Khan started to say there is a, um, you know, there's a foreign conspiracy and so on. And, and as that began to pick up, the new prime minister, Shabazz um, uh, Sharif, he had to basically also adopt that line. And he has called for a parliamentary inquiry, whether this is a foreign, you know, an attempted coup in the country and so on. So it's not, I'm not saying that there was a coup or wasn't a coup, but the argument stuck. It's people have a receptivity to that argument. Now, very quickly, Imran Khan tried to do a couple of constitutional things, you know, dissolving parliament, calling for elections and all that. But the appetite in the opposition wasn't for that. And, you know, they wanted to have uh, him removed from office and, and so on and so forth, which is exactly what happened. Point is, of course, there's pressure from the United States on the military. Of course, there is. I mean, that's the reason the military chiefs spoke in that way. But I also want to say that the military chiefs also have an alignment with Washington. It's not like Washington is telling them what to do. They are uncomfortable with any break from Washington. That's one. And secondly, um, you know, Washington has given Pakistan enormous latitude to uh, build its economic ties with China. There's been little interference there. And I think the reason is, and here we come to the broader Asian question, is the United States has basically figured out that it doesn't have the economic ability to compete with China when it comes to development aid to countries like Pakistan, um, to countries in Africa, and to some extent countries in Latin America. The Chinese largesse is much greater. So it has to create a lane to allow this sort of trade relationship. But the U.S. still has a very close link with the military. So I'm not saying it was a coup, it wasn't a coup. I think the story is quite complicated. But certainly there was foreign interference of one kind. And, and whether there was or not, let's see what the parliamentary inquiry comes up with. And what does that reveal about the state of politics in Pakistan right now? And not only right now, but this seems to be like a trend that a lot of prime ministers in Pakistan don't fill out a full term. Why is that? Well, you know, um, you get to fill out uh, your whole term uh, if, if you don't have a military breathing down your neck, one. Secondly, if you're able to break the back of the basic problems that confront the people, you know, the problems of poverty, hunger, 
um, you know, illiteracy and so on. And, you know, the last time you got a kind of even a socialistic agenda on the table was the 1970s when Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who was a creature of the military, broke away a little bit and, you know, talked in a socialistic vein. Um, it didn't help him. He was himself victim of a coup and was killed in prison by General Ziaul Haq, the man who um, helps the United States uh, destabilize Afghanistan. Um, but still, that was a moment. And by the way, it's not something to celebrate, um, you know, by waving flags, because this is the same man, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who participated in the terrible military um, violence in East Pakistan, which becomes Bangladesh. But anyway, at the time, there was some talk about taking care of hunger and so on. You know, Katie, if your government is unable to move an agenda against a rigid class structure, um, it's hard to finish a term. Uh, and as I said, the military, I mean, you know, the military, um, it's basically, in, it was fundamentally integrated with the British military. Um, and then in the course of the Afghanistan destabilization campaign, it got fundamentally integrated into the US military. And they basically will not allow, um, you know, the elite structure to be dismantled in any way. Now, across the border in India, things are not great either. There's enormous hunger, deprivation and so on. Why is it that the governments are able to, um, you know, f finish their term? I mean, that could be a question. Well, to some extent that in India, the military is engaged. Um, the military is, is within the barracks. It doesn't, it's not allowed to exceed the barracks. And I think when you have the military basically calling the shots, it's very destabilizing for a civilian government. That makes sense. So any predictions that you have to make? I mean, you've got a new government there. Uh, you have to understand that the two principal parties who for years were at each other's throats, the parties of the party of the Bhuttos, the People's Party of Pakistan, Pakistan People's Party, that's, you know, run by um, Mrs. Benazir Bhutto's son. Uh, he is the head of that party. And the other side, the party of Nawaz Sharif is, you know, family's fief. These are two feudal parties that are basically running things. Obviously, they are not going to, um, you know, at all nudge against the power structure, the class structure in Pakistan. So they're not going to solve the problem of inflation or anything like that. It's true that the military basically, I think, you know, gave its blessings and said, go and govern in Islamabad. How long that lasts, it's hard to say. You know, um, the military is, is concerned about a couple of things. One, its relationship with Washington. I believe that's very important to the military. Secondly, I think the military is really, really concerned about maintaining the class structure in Pakistan. They don't want to, you know, this is not a radical military. There are no Hugo Chavez's in the leadership anywhere here. So they don't want to rattle the class structure. And the third thing I think is they are concerned about the military. You know, the closest parallel to Pakistan is Egypt, where, you know, during the Arab Spring, uh, the military, General Field Marshal Tantawi, uh, very, you know, cleverly in a way, um, sort of went along with the protests and they toppled Hosni Mubarak, a former military man. When Mubarak was sent off to Saudi Arabia, uh, the military retained power. Then the military allowed a little bit of democracy. They allowed the Muslim Brotherhood to run under Mohammed Morsi. 
the moment morsi started to go a little too far away from the military's own agenda they toppled him and brought back general abdul fatah al sisi and now general abdul fatah al sisi goes back home takes off his uniform puts on a suit and he returns as the civilian president i mean the 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 very close relation between what you see in egypt where again the military is a great defender of the class structure in egypt you know uh, again a great defender of the so called special relationship with washington um, they don't want to rattle that and they are concerned about the military you know in in both countries military actually has an enormous role in the economy uh, when you go in pakistan in, in shops you used to be able to see a lot of stuff like soap you could buy forgy brand soap and you know various things forgy forgy means the soldiers um they actually sold goods and services uh, into the economy and they made a lot of money on it uh, the military is the largest landowner and so on so between the military in pakistan and in egypt there's similarities they just won't let go they won't allow the people to actually breathe in 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 that sense so whether it's you know mr sharif or it's imran khan it's a matter of latitudes honestly uh, what needs to go is is this milit the carapace of the military which is basically throttling democracy in the country i wanted to shift gears a little bit although of course this could be part of the pakistan discussion you wrote a really great piece called is asia possible two words mean so little these days asia and solidarity what made you write this piece yeah so i'm glad you asked me about it katie because it's really really meaningful to me um uh why well look um i believe and i i could be quite wrong but i believe that the war in ukraine is not really a war in ukraine this is not a war about ukraine and russia yes it's about crimea and it's about the land bridge that will connect lugansk to crimea and and perhaps it's about um you know the nazis and it's about you know various things you know um okay it's about all that's why the russians are there and so on but i think the principle thing that's going on is something that gets very little con- discussion in 2018 the united states government and, and you don't need any analysis you know when, when i was talking about pakistan um there's a lot that you have to summarize because very little of it is put down on paper one of the interesting things about the united states is that the government says these things openly and people just don't pay attention so anyway in 2018 the us government released its defense strategy um well now pay attention to these things in 2002 right after 911 the bush administration said that the focus of us power was the global war on terror let's go out there and let's destroy the terrorists that was the bush administration strategy in 2018 under donald trump that strategy was changed um jim mattis was the defense secretary and mattis and trump put a new strategy forward they said that the war on terror is over and i don't know if anybody noticed but they said the war on terror is over the new war is to basically prevent the emergence of what matters called near peer powers near peer now who are the near peer powers russia and china they must be prevented from standing up now what's interesting is to prevent them from standing up the united states has been doing a number of things one is encircling eurasia um you know bringing nato 
into naval, um, you know, kind of a naval axis around the Arctic Sea, from the Baltics, Arctic, all the way across into the South China Sea. NATO ships have been conducting what are known as freedom of navigation um, missions, going really close to the territorial line for Russia and then China. Um, by the way, it's interesting that the U.S. government conducts freedom of navigation missions. The freedom of navigation is a term of art from a United Nations treaty, the Laws of the Sea Treaty, which the U.S. government is not a signatory to. So the U.S. government, once again, is enforcing something which it has not signed on to because, you know, I would like to see freedom of navigation conducted by, let's say, the Cuban Navy uh, off the coast of Florida to make sure that gangsters from Florida don't once again come to overthrow the Cuban government. Why not? But no, the U.S. government is not a signatory, so you can't mess around with U.S. territorial waters. But that has been happening. Then there's been a real contest on the islands around um, the South China Sea up to the Arctic, where countries like Guam, Solomon Islands, and so on have become a contest for U.S. power against China and Russia. Um, there have been really close calls in the Baltic Sea over the last couple of years. And then linked to this, the United States government withdrew in 2018 from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Um, this is a huge destruction of the arms control architecture, and it was really threatening to Russia and China. So I, looking at all this, felt a sense of frustration that the old Pan-Asian dream, you know, like the Bolivarian dream in South America that Chavez, you know, evoked. Chavez came in 1999 and said, let's create a Bolivarian, you know, continent. Let's create a continent that looks at our needs, doesn't just, you know, uh, facilitate what the United States wants. There's a Bolivarian dream in, in, South America, in Latin America. There's a Pan-African dream that continues to exist. Kwame Nkrumah of Africa, you know, created a Pan-African dream. Let's create a Pan-African agenda. Africa should not be subordinate to Europe or North America and so on. There's no Pan-Asian consciousness. You know, that was killed off by Japanese imperialism in, in the 1930s and 40s, killed off. Um, the attempt to create, you know, some sort of Pan-Asian understanding and so on. They, there were moments when it came back, but it's gone now. You know, the conflicts between India and China, uh, between Japan and Russia, Japan and China, these things are quite severe. So I wanted to come back and just reflect in almost a sorrowful way. I wanted to reflect on how hard it is to articulate a Pan-Asian dream. And so that's why I wrote, is Asia possible? Um, I think it is possible. And in fact, I think that the United States has, uh, by this pressure campaign against Russia and China, um, has created actually the material basis for a kind of Pan-Asianism to emerge. It's early days. But I think what I wanted to say is let's start a dialogue, you know, uh, about Pan-Asianism. Let people in Japan and China and India, Pakistan, Central Asian countries and so on, and Russia, think about this. You know, I'm not comfortable with the whole um, Asian landmass theory. You know, if you dominate Asia, the so-called Makinda hypothesis, I'm not comfortable with that. The United States didn't dominate um, Central A and, and the middle of Asia, and it dominates the world. You know, that's 
you can't take a 19th century um, theory and say it applies today. You know, today you don't need the center of Asia. You can dominate the world in different ways. Um, so I, I don't like that as such. I think the contest really um, is over not allowing these countries from becoming peers. Matt has said it openly. Biden has never revoked that particular um, uh, you know, defense strategy. So yeah, it's in a way out of a kind of hopefulness that I'm saying, is it possible in this time because of these contradictions for us to start rather than looking inward and defensively to look outward to some kind of pan-Asianism and something that perhaps also draws in Europe. It's interesting how Russia has always been in this kind of like no man's land where sometimes it's considered Asian, sometimes it's considered European. So where would that fall in this? Look, these things are artificial, you know. I mean, some human decided to draw the line. I mean, it's like Turkey. Turkey, most of Turkey is in Asia. Only Istanbul really is in Europe. You know, the other side of the Bosporus is Europe. That's basically Istanbul and greater Istanbul. Even Actually, that's not even true, Katie, because large parts of Istanbul are on the Asian side. You know, you, you, they call it the Asian side of Istanbul. Um, is Turkey European or Asian? Well, people say it's, you know, it's, it's Asian. It's an Asian power wanting to get into the EU. I think that's also quite silly because technically it's in Europe and Asia. Russia is a different question. Russia's main urban areas were in, are in um, the European side, you know, what is today St. Petersburg, Moscow, and so on. Um, but its major landmass is in Asia. And increasingly, as a consequence of this pressure campaign against Russia, increasingly, Russia has turned from Berlin towards Beijing. And that turn by Russia, you know, when the Russians decided that the Davos meeting after... the you know, this is actually goes back before the fall of the Soviet Union. International, major international capitalists used to meet in Davos, Switzerland. They continued to meet there every year at the World Economic Forum. Well, after the fall of the Soviet Union, all the Russian billionaires showed up there, Boris Yeltsin, they all wanted to integrate with Davos. Well, when that wasn't working, particularly after the world financial crisis, 2008, um, the Russians set up the St. Petersburg Forum as an alternative to Davos, and they meet there every year. Increasingly, St. Petersburg Forum is more and more an Asian forum. There are people from China, India, Vietnam, Japan, you know, Russia, and so on. It, it doesn't look at all like Davos. You know, Davos is basically U.S., you know, Europeans, and so on. St. Petersburg, also Turks, I forgot, a lot of people from Turkey as well. It's got a completely different vibe, you know, uh, and the vibe is a kind of Asian business vibe. As I said, the Japanese are there in large numbers. Um, Japan is a member of the G7. It's a very close ally of the United States. It basically, I know it's rude to say this, but at one level, Japan is like a military base of the U.S. You know, Okinawa Island, certainly a military base of the US, but Japan is one of the big investors in Russia's energy uh, networks. And, you know, 23 or so, um, you know, miles off the coast of Hokkaido is Sakhalin Island, just north of Hokkaido. Sakhalin Island is the principal, um, you know, new 
energy uh, you know prospects for the russians sakhalin 1 and 2 major investor in sakhalin 1 and 2 is the japanese development bank which is a government bank here's japan major ally of the us in the quad which is sometimes called the asian nato you know um, that's india japan australia and united states and yet it's a principal investor not in the us but in russia and so these contradictions as i'm saying you know the you can see at st petersburg there's a new articulation of business interests these are not socialists okay these are new articulation of business interests uh, coalescing around the asian continent drawing in parts of europe particularly germany and what about the impacts of not just the war but the sanctions can you talk more about that in areas of the world that again we don't really hear about namely central asia but all over the world because i know that you look at that too so yeah but let's start where people don't often look which is central asia i mean you know it's to be said that when the ussr collapsed it went away quite peacefully um pretty amazing you know this major world historical project was you know assassinated actually by the leadership and and there was some violence you know i mean i i get this a lot on social media tanky this tanky that um but people forget that in 19 uh, 91 i believe boris yeltsin the great darling of the united states uh, brought tanks to shell the russian parliament i mean it was a coup d'etat against the parliament conducted by yeltsin and his clique which included at the time vladimir putin you know becomes it was the heir apparent of yeltsin and follows him in 1999 um there was no violence in the breakup of the soviet union ukraine armenia azerbaijan you know kazakhstan they went pretty uh, peacefully i quote unquote peacefully pretty peacefully compared to yugoslavia's breakup pretty peaceful there was no ethnic cleansing as such you know in yugoslavia the ethnic cleansing was extreme violence against bosnian muslims is well known but what about the violence in croatia against the serbs of krajina half a million of them were expelled from their homes uh, pushed to go to serbia which was not known to them you know it's ridiculous that that's tantamount to telling you know mexican americans okay now you have to go to live in mexico i mean that's ridiculous you know people say what am i going to do there um so um the central asian republics five of them which emerged you know they emerged as independent republics but they are landlocked uh, for the most part except uh, small access to uh, some water but basically landlocked and they rely on russia for imports of you know most of their food stuff like for instance um you know sugar uh, grain and so on and they rely on russia for the export of their energy um it goes into russia uses russian pipelines or uses russian ports because they're landlocked so these countries are totally reliant on russia when the west banned sanctions on russia you know this is not now this is 2014 um these countries struggle like hell and what i was interested in is you know these are old great agriculture countries uzbekistan for instance you know the great uh, um plains of uzbekistan uh, it's a beautiful country you know and and the ability for that country to grow its own food 
it's easy you know it has very uh, fertile soil and so on the productivity rates in agriculture are poor uh, partly there's just not been attention paid in the last 30 years um you know to proper agricultural science and so on i don't mean gmos and stuff i just mean better use of of water better harnessing of of energy from the sun um you know all of that has not been done uh, properly and the uzbeks and the kazakhs and so on they recognize that um they basically have have relied on um in a way uh, relied on on importing food from russia that's been a reliance and i interviewed a number of scientists and some government officials in kazakhstan in the kyrgyz republic and uzbekistan at the time of navroz which is their new years when the diet basically kati is made of wheat and um of sugar the two things that russia said we can't export anymore because of the sanctions um and so they were now thinking can we become self reliant in the production of of sugar or can we have a regional economy a central asian regional economy and so on uh, the sanctions are hurting these countries terribly i mean i don't get washington and the us treasury department and i don't understand why the international media takes them at face value when they say for instance we are going to sanction russia to hurt what they call the oligarchs i mean this is a bizarre thing okay it's washington dc that created these billionaires in russia washington dc uh, provided advisors to go and allow yeltsin and later putin to basically destroy the soviet union and hand it over to a group of individuals who now these people call oligarchs well what is you know what is uh, jeb bezos isn't he an oligarch why don't we use the term oligarch for him also because he's not russian apparently yes there's a racial element but by the way bernie sanders i was told calls them oligarch paul j said that i saw that interview yeah yeah paul j told me i was like oh i didn't i actually didn't go and check that so. yeah he does he does the oligarchs oligarchs yeah uh, yeah uh, that's great that bernie did that but you see the thing is why are you going after them like that if you're going to target them target them but the problem is you can't do targeted sanctions they don't actually work you know i was very upset by talking to these people in in place, especially in the kyrgyz republic is extremely poor society and there's no public discussion about how sanctions on russia is going to crush the kyrgyz people you know it's going to crush them um what's happening in 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 sri lanka now it's a, to a great extent the rise of fuel and food prices and we're going to see this all over the world kati um it's not this is not the end this is the beginning you know as inflation rises um there is nothing like inflation to bring people on the street there is nothing like the rise of food particularly bread prices to bring people on the street there's going to be chaos and you know okay i'm a person of the left um i would say come on to the street let's overthrow the governments and so on but the left is weak in many of these countries it's the right that's going to benefit the far right um and that's not great either you know uh, you see that in india where the right is riding the far right is riding the pony of discontent and now this week there have been terrible attacks against muslim institutions against mosques homes businesses owned by muslims and so on that's not great either you know so like we have to look i start with the the possibility not to bring chaos into the world i don't want to see that i want to improve people's lives and this kind of chaos 
There is no guarantee it will improve people's lives. It will tear people apart. It will tear societies further apart. Societies already broken by neo neoliberal policy will be torn further apart. It's very, very sad. And what about Latin America, which is an area I know that you spent a lot of time in? What is the effect of the sanctions, of the war, of the kind of realignment that we're seeing? Places like Venezuela, but also is there any effect on Chile, which is, I know, a place that you spent a lot of time in? Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.